Daniel is correct in saying that I uh, am a director of uh, Christian Heritage London. This is us, and it's been very nice to see at least one. Oh, this is not us. This is us. Look at that. No, this is not us. This is us. Um, it's, it's lovely to see one or two people who've been on my walk in the city of London and tour of the British Museum. I think where's Heather? I saw Heather other. Hi, Heather. Nice to see you. You're right. And um, where's Cameron? I haven't met Cameron yet. Hi, Cameron. I've heard of you, but I've not met you. And uh, uh, and uh, anyone else? I recognise Steve. I've recognised Steve. I've known Andrew for decades because we bumped into each other since since Plumpton, where I met this extremely beautiful woman here who who somehow decided to marry me which is confusing for all people with sense why would a, such a beautiful woman marry a man with a face like a mad baboon well um uh, what we put up at our wedding was psalm 37 verse 4 delight yourself in the lord and he will give you your heart's desire which is my only <laughs> defense for how she would make such a strange decision okay so um so who else do i reckon i i know you georgie right yes we came on she came on my walks it is a fantastic privilege to be in a city where god has done such awesome things is it not um internationally all over the world if you listen to characters like Ravi Zacharias, if you listen to Tim Keller, Vishal Mangalwadi, John Piper, Don Carson, if you listen to speakers of the gospel all over the world, when they are looking for an illustration for how the gospel can change the world, they start talking about London. They start talking about Wilberforce, Spurgeon, Tyndale, Wesley, Whitfield, Elizabeth Fry, Lord Shaftesbury, people who have made history which the world looks back at and says, do it again, God. Yes. I've done it here. Yes. <laughs> Recently, Crossway put out a series of books called Theologians on the Christian Life. Fifteen books. Five of them, five of the people, their ministry was done in London. Okay, five of 15. That's compared with three from the whole nation of America. Okay, and that's five, not including characters like Bonhoeffer, who did great things in London, and Packer and C.S. Lewis, who of course were in London. God has done awesome things in this city. This is a city that people are not trying to escape from at the moment. They escape to it. And that is not because the English are nice. Okay? I speak as a not very nice English person. <laughs> very nice English people have fought the gospel for centuries. It took William Wilberforce 46 years to convince nice English people that slavery is wrong. While nice English people said, it's fine, it's fine. Okay? The reason this nation and this city has known stability, the reason this city has known blessing, the reason this is a city that people flee to, is because Jesus Christ said, this is what the kingdom of God is like. A woman took a little bit of yeast, she put it into the flour, until the whole dough was leavened. And there have been leavenings in this city. Now, what I'm going to do with you this morning, um, loosely, I'm going to come from Hebrews 13, 7 to 8. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to tell you some stories. 
about our ancestors, about our friends, about some people who I hope we will see. And one day we'll meet them and say, we walked down those streets as well. And as we did, we said, oh God. Okay. Hebrews 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Brilliant. And what's the next verse? Jesus Christ is the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. Now, The people I'm going to talk to you about, I'm going to draw lessons from each of their lives, but I'm going to tell you, essentially going to tell you stories. <laughs> the first person I want to tell you about, just for a moment, his name was John Dunn. D-O-N-N-E. Anyone heard of John Dunn? D-O-N-N-E. He was a, do you know? A poet. He was a poet. And as a poet, he was poor, because that's the rule. And he had, um, he had eight children, and he couldn't feed them. And several of them died. And John Donne contemplated suicide. And later in life, as a Christian, he was invited to become Dean of St. Paul's Cathedral. So here's a man who was known terrible poverty, but who is known later in life as known provision, comfort, wealth. But when he wrote his holy sonnets, when he wrote his worship poems, he didn't write, oh Lord, your money is very good. <laughs> what he wrote was, batter my heart, three-personed God, for you as yet but knock, breathe, shine, and seek to mend, that I may rise and stand. Overthrow me, and bend your force to break, blow, burn, and make me new. And he finished, I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free, nor ever chaste, except you ravish me. Okay. I, except you enthrall me, never shall be free. Okay? Or as Paul might have put it for me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Now that has been the cry of the people I'm going to be telling you about. They just wanted him. They just wanted him. And as they did, they had, it's like they had one foot already in heaven. They said, I know what it's like there. I know what he's like. And as they did, they brought a little bit of they brought the kingdom of God in, which is why I'm talking to you about it, because you're coming here saying, uh, we have not come here to make money. We've not come here to get a name for ourselves. We've come here because he's worthy. Yes. That's what we're for. Yes. So I'm telling you about some people who said that, yeah. and the world now says, yeah, they changed the world. Yeah. It's not just an opinion. We can put dates on it. 26th of July, 1833. They've ended the slave trade. You know, dates like that. Now, uh, so that's a little about uh, John Donne. But the first person I want to tell you extensively about is a man by the name of John Wesley. Now, John Wesley was an Oxford academic. 
I'm sure half of us are Oxford going. No, he was an Oxford academic who tried to become a missionary, but he had a terrible time in America, in Savannah, Georgia. Anyone been to Georgia? Um, it was Savannah, Georgia. He was out there trying to preach, but he was preaching the law. <laughs> he was preaching to a church. Come on, try harder. Come on, try harder. Try harder. Stop sinning. Try harder. Will you please try harder? Now, the extraordinary thing is, if he had just turned on a few pages and opened up Romans, he would have seen the law is like an overbearing husband who is always right, but who does nothing to help. Okay? The law tells you what you must do very accurately, very consistently and very condemningly. Paul calls the law the ministry of death. And John Wesley was preaching it week after week in the church. It's amazing he lasted nearly two years because he completely condemned his congregation and himself, you know? Have you ever noticed um, one way I'm going to try and help stop doing something bad myself is really come down on people who I see them doing it. Do you know what I mean? If I tell them to stop, it'll really make me say, no, the trouble is you cannot change your heart even by telling everyone else what to do, okay? I'm sure we work with people like that. I'm sure we see that in ourselves. A tendency to pretend I'm there. <laughs> and John Wesley, it's interesting, he lived nearly two years telling people what to do and then finding himself, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it myself. Came back to England, a disappointed, disillusioned, ex-missionary. Uh, he writes in his journal, 24th of May, 1738. He says, in the evening, he says, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street. Someone had dragged him along into a meeting. I know what he's going to say. I should try harder. I should try harder. I know I don't try harder. I know I tried trying harder. I don't do anymore. <laughs> well, one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. You know, tell us some old story about some dead guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ. I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he'd taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. See, John Wesley had understood for the first time the gospel is not instructions. The gospel is an announcement. Very good. He did it. It's finished. Yeah. Thank you, Lord. And now by grace, you're Thank saved you, through faith. Yeah. Now when he got that, he started to preach it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, he preached, they say, 40,000 times around. He was preaching, uh, he was traveling an average of 3,000 miles a year, um, mostly on horseback. Um, but most impressively, he started over 300 churches. 
over 300. And most of them were made up of the poor and the poorest. Because what was happening was he was... Uh, He'd preach the gospel and people would all respond, oh, this is wonderful. And then the people he was preaching to were the poorest. And then they'd show up at church the next week. And the people in the church would who's this? And they would not be welcomed or they wouldn't even be allowed, you see? Because all they had was Christ. And, <laughs> and so John Wesley said, okay, let's start our own churches. He started over 300 in his life. <laughs> and he would travel London, Bristol, Newcastle, London, Bristol, Newcastle, and he'd pick up all the places in between. Uh, people sometimes say, I, I, there's a, they tell me that, I've seen a statue, there's a statue of Wesley in my town. Yeah, yeah. yeah was, someone told me once, he preached in my village, you know. I said, oh really, what happened? They stoned him, she said. Which I think is an important story, you know. <laughs> Because we sometimes think, revival is easy. Yeah. In the revival, you get stoned, and it's hard. But one thing which is a constant is you get the gospel, you get the gospel of God, and you preach the gospel. <laughs> now, Wes when Wesley died in 1791, he was considered the most loved man in England. And when he died in 1791, in France, they were having the French Revolution, and um, thousands of the poorest in France had risen up and slaughtered the rich. Okay, there was the murder; thousands were murdered. Secular historians acknowledge that the reason we didn't have a revolution in this country at the same time is because John Wesley changed the nation. Okay. So here's a man who is a, a great figure in the nation's history, but only because of the gospel, okay? You cannot understand his story by saying, well, there was a day in 1738 when he decided to try a bit harder. <laughs> you can only understand his story by, it was when I understood this, I thought I trusted in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. Yeah. <laughs> That's what all believers have, isn't it? I have him. And he's enough. Yeah. He's enough for the Father. Mm. He's enough for me. Okay? And that changed everything. That changed everything. So the, the first one I wanted to tell you about was Wesley. Um, you see, what the law couldn't do, God did. <laughs> and Wesley got that. And he started to preach it. Now, um, I'd like to tell you just a little just a little tangent from Wesley's story, and that's this. What you guys are trying to do here is one of the most exciting things going on in London at the moment, because you're trying to start a church. Yes. Is London known for the wisdom of God at the moment? No, and it's known for folly. It's known for, at best, foolishness. And we're going to build on foolishness. I mean, London is not known for the wisdom of God. How is the wisdom of God displayed? through the church, yes, yes. through the church. Wesley got it. He didn't try and set up charities and so on. He started to set up churches, 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 okay? His friend, George Whitfield, was a great gospel preacher. And Whitfield used to preach in Moorfields, Hyde Park Corner up the road from here, down at Shooter's Hill and Kennington. He preached to tens of thousands. 
tens of thousands. Benjamin Franklin heard him preach in America and he calculated that, he walked around the crowd and calculated that there were 20,000 people there. 20,000. And he walked around the whole crowd and he said, I could hear him clearly at every point. This is Benjamin Franklin. This isn't some enthusiastic sentimentalist. This is one of the founding fathers of the American nation. <laughs> 20,000, he calculated. Whitfield preached and preached and preached of vast numbers, flavored an era. But he and Wesley seriously disagreed about some stuff. Now, I mention it for this reason. When people were trying to get in with Whitfield, and when people were trying to get in with Wesley, they would go up to one of them and say something bad about the other one. Every child has seen this, right? So we would go up to, you go up to Wesley and say, oh, Mr. Wesley. And this, we have on record, someone went up to a service that Wesley was about to speak at with a letter that George Whitfield had written, which he had had published because it said something how he disagreed with Wesley. Doesn't, I mean, you following? Does that make sense so far? Yeah. So there's a, there's, a, there's a service, Wesley's about to speak, and everyone's been given a letter that's been passed around, everyone's got the letter. And John Wesley stood up at the front and said, I hear a letter from Mr. Whitfield, my friend has been passed around. Um, I will do with my copy what I believe he would do if he was here. And he screwed it up and threw it away. Okay. Whitfield. Someone once went up to Whitfield and said, Mr. Whitfield, do you think we'll uh, see John Wesley in heaven then? And George Whitfield said, oh no, no, no. He'll be far closer to the throne than we will. You see? These men disagreed about big things. But there was this love between them. Where did that come from? Peter says this. <coughs> As we come to him, we are being built together. Okay? We are being built together. So AJ saying the hottest thing at the marathon was the times we worshipped. As we come to him, we're being built together. <coughs> Whitfield and Wesley used to go and pray at Fetter Lane with Harold Harris and with the other revivalist, John Kennick. And they would cry out to God in Fetter Lane. I drove down it this morning and they cried, oh God, they'd cry into the night. They'd pray through the night and the Holy Spirit fell on them in awesome power, which embarrasses historians because the people were falling down under the power of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't get written about much, but they came to him together and they were built together. So what did you do on Sunday? We sang some songs in a room. Or we came to God. Yeah. We came to God. And he's building us together. He's yeah. building us together. Yeah. Okay. Now the next person I want to tell you about, one of our friends, is a man by the name of William Tyndale. I had an extraordinary um, privilege of being on a radio show with Melvin Bragg the other day, who has written a whole book about Tyndale because he so admires Tyndale. As a, as a figure in history. You see, the professor of English at University College London, David Daniel, said that 
the English language owes more to William Tyndale than to Shakespeare. Okay? He's been considered to be one of the most important people ever to have come from this country. Uh, you see, what was happening was this. In 1517, 502 years ago, London was a very different place, okay? There, maybe 40,000 people lived here. Um, just, imagine a, uh, just imagine a world without anesthetic. <laughs> yeah, there's a, there's a twinge. <laughs> um, infant mortality was one in three. So you have three children, you kind of expect to keep two. And when your baby dies, it's just how it is. Um, you would get your water from where you get rid of your waste. In 1517, life was gritty. And in that world, people would go to church, not because they wanted to hear the preaching. The only Bibles were in Latin, okay? The ministers of the churches, a survey was done. And they found among ministers of churches, full-time ministers of churches, they were asked, how many commandments did God give to Moses on the mountain? And uh, Moses, uh, and the, these ministers of churches, I don't know. Uh, and where would you find these commandments in the Bible? And the ministers of churches said, uh, I don't know. The best guess was the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, the, the, these same ministers were asked, um, who wrote the Lord's Prayer? You see, being a minister of a church in the 1500s was a comfortable living with a house. You see? And it was into that world in 1517 that Martin Luther <laughs> nailed the 95 Theses to the door of Wittenberg Church, saying, it doesn't make Christians happy if you just give them the law. It's beautiful, he hooks it in happiness. But um, what happened was, of course, the Reformation began. He started to tell people, that's not what it says here. You see, people in that world would go to church because if I get the bread and wine, I might get good luck. And in that gritty world, you wanted all the luck you could get. And Martin Luther came in saying, that's not what it says here. Here it says, the just became the justifier of the one who would have faith in Jesus. And Europe caught fire with this gospel. Now Tyndale was a brilliant linguist, and he got this. He was studying, he was a young man at the same time in 1517, he was a young, brilliant student. He knew, they say, by the time he was 25, eight languages well. So he was brilliant with language. And he was leading people to Christ in ones and twos. He was saying, with all his academic ability, he was saying, do you understand that what the Bible teaches is very different to what the churches are saying? Where the church says, be your best self, try your hardest, be a good person. The Bible says, you're not a good person, he knows he died for you. <laughs> and people were becoming Christians around him. 
But this started to happen. See if this sounds familiar. He would tell someone the gospel, and then what would happen would be, of course, um, they'd go away thrilled, <gasps> amazed. Is it not then that the devil comes along and says, so you're saved by faith, are you? And you go, yes, completely by faith. <laughs> so not your works then. No, not my works, entirely Jesus' works. Oh, how lovely. Well, you can do what you like now then. And this new Christian would say, oh, I can't just do what I like. And the devil says, well done. Let me give you some extra rules. Let's add some stuff to Christ. And then you'll be a real Christian. Not like one of those hypocrites. And you'll be better than the other ones. And so someone who starts with just new life and amazement at the grace of God is quickly taken down with religion, with self-righteousness, and then, of course, with terrible condemnation. Because which one of us keeps those rules? That's the whole point of a saviour. If you've got a Bible on the front of it, you often find a picture of a cross. It's all about a saver, one who came, came to save. <laughs> And um, so Tyndale found people were responding to the gospel, but they didn't have a Bible. You see, the only Bibles are in Latin. So he went to the authorities and said, how about I translate it? I'll translate it into, into, into English so that the people could be nourished, could be fed. And again, he was treated with hostility and he had to escape the country. Okay? And he makes it to Europe, and there he translates this magnificent, accessible, glorious New Testament. And they smuggled them over. And some of the first copies that made it were captured. And were taken to St. Paul's Cathedral. And while the, the crowds stood round, they were burned. Because that's what we do, isn't it? The Son of God comes to the world, we kill him. The New Testament comes to us in English, we burn it. Tyndale is said to have, you see, we're not neutral. We are not neutral. I'm sure you've, I hope you've picked that up so far. Tyndale is said to have taken it very, very hard. But just as the seed he sowed died, so the demand grew. And in the end, they say 100,000 copies made it into English people's hands. Okay? It was a massive, massive success. Later, when the King James Version was commissioned, nine-tenths of the New Testament was taken straight from Tyndale. He invents words that we use every day. Beautiful. Tyndale. Loving-kindness. Tyndale. Atonement. Tyndale. Phrases like, let there be light, is Tyndale. You sometimes notice how brilliant he is when you see a modern translation that moves away from Tyndale. So one modern translation had, and Peter went out and cried a lot. <laughs> and then you see the genius of Tyndale. Peter went out and wept bitterly. So you need a Bible. 
you need a Bible. <laughs> Without a Bible, you're not just going to guess. <laughs> you're not going to guess stories of like people who walked with Jesus and failed him. And Jesus saying, Simon, do you love me? You know I love you, Lord. Feed my lambs. You need a Bible. You need to feed your soul. Yeah? You need him on every page. Uh -huh. Yeah? You're not just going to guess Galatians. You're not just going to guess Romans. You need, you need it. <laughs> you may say, no, 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 I, I, I don't need to have a theology. If you say, I don't need to have a theology, that's your theology. I have no theology. <laughs> what are you going to do then when a subtle, a subtle confusion comes in? Or a family member chooses some, something which is leading to death? or someone you're trying to explain the gospel to, here's some heresy. What are you going to do? You need a Bible. You need a Bible. Yeah. <laughs> so, Tyndale's New Testament got out there, 1526, but um, nine years later they got him in Belgium. And, um, and in 1536 he was strangled and he was burned at the stake in Belgium. But they say that uh, just before he was strangled, he cried out. But what he cried out was not, Oh Lord, remember the, remember the work I did? The book. And neither did he cry out, Oh Lord, have mercy on me. No, he, they say he cried out, Lord, open the eyes of the King of England. So he was living by faith. Living by faith to the end. And also, he wasn't pleading for his soul. He knew his soul was purchased on a wooden cross outside Jerusalem 1,500 years earlier. It is finished by someone else. That's the gospel. So, Wesley, the gospel. Tyndale, the Bible. Now I want to talk about someone who's a, a precious saint from our history. His name is John Newton. Now, John Newton, you may know, was an exceptionally horrible person. He was a slave trader who saw atrocities on a regular basis. Okay? He was um, 11 million people. 11 million people. You can't imagine that. Were taken from uh, Africa and sold into slavery in the West Indies and in America, and of course each one a tragedy. Um, some were the, the, the consequences of battles that were lost where the enemies were sold in Africa, some were the consequences of um, communities deciding to get rid of their uh, criminals, some were just stolen from homes. The great um, abolitionist Equiano uh, who was an African who had been stolen into slavery, wrote his own story in which he says this, when he was as a child in his home in Africa. One day, when all our people were gone out to their works as usual, and only I and my dear sister were left to mind the house, two men and a woman got over our walls and in a moment seized us both. 
And without giving us time to cry out or make resistance, they stopped our mouths and ran off with us into the nearest wood. Here they tied our hands and continued to carry us as far as they could till night came on, when we reached a small house where the robbers halted for refreshment and spent the night. The next morning we left the house and continued traveling all the day. For a long time we had kept the woods, but at last we came into a road which I believed I knew. I had now some hopes of being delivered, for we had advanced but a little way before I discovered some people at a distance, on which I began to cry out for their assistance. But my cries had no other effect than to make them tie me faster and stop my mouth. And then they put me into a large sack. They also stopped my sister's mouth and tied her hands. And in this manner we proceeded till we were out of sight of these people. The next day proved a, great, a greater sorrow than I had yet experienced. For my sister and I were then separated while we lay clasped in each other's arms. It was in vain that we besought them not to part us. She was torn from me and immediately carried away while I was left in a state of distraction not to be described. That's one man. Eleven million. Newton describes how he was once on a ship where down below decks there were um, a whole bunch of these African people who'd been chained up into tiny spaces and um, they had nothing but among them was one person who still had something and it was a woman and what she had was her baby and uh, at night the baby was keeping the captain awake with his crying and so the captain went down below decks and found where the noise was coming from and pulled the baby off the mother threw it over the side of the ship so Newton was involved in this slave trade up to his neck. The other sailors particularly disliked him because he was so gross. The way he used his mouth was disgusting. And one day, as they were traveling down the west coast of Africa, he had become ill and they put him on shore to be cared for by a, uh, by a native chieftain woman called P.I. But instead of caring for him, she enslaved him. And he said he wouldn't have survived except for the compassion of uh, some of the local, uh, one of the local men who gave him the food he didn't eat. Nearly two years later, he was rescued by a ship going back to England. And the ship was called the Greyhound. On the night of the 20th and the 21st of March, 1748, it was while he was asleep on that ship that he was woken by the terrifying sound of water pouring through his cabin and someone shouting, the ship is going down! He jumped from his bunk, started to climb the ladder up onto the deck. But as he started to climb, the captain called up to him, Newton, come down here, bring me a knife. So instead of going up, he went down. The man who did climb the ladder made it to the deck and as soon as he landed on the deck, a wave washed him off and he was never seen again. Newton said we had no time to grieve for him because um, we thought any minute we'd be at the bottom of the sea. 
um, he went down below decks and saw men just bailing. There was, the timbers on one side of the ship had been ripped out and water had just started to pour in. He saw sailors who had lived through many storms had just given up. And he himself was put to the pumps where he desperately started to pump and pump and pump the water that was just pouring in. He pumped from three in the morning until noon. At the end of which he said, I lay on my bunk, hardly caring if I would ever get up again. But they took him and they strapped him to the wheel of the ship. And he held onto the ship. He held onto the wheel. Well, this, well, the waves were pouring up. He said every time the nose went below the, the water, he wondered if this would be the last time. And there in the middle of the ocean, he did something he hadn't done for years. You see, his mother had raised him on the hymns of Isaac Watts. And she used to pray for him. And she died when he was six. And he had become atheist and there in the middle of the ocean for the first time for years he said I prayed he said I didn't pray as a son to the father I, I prayed as the ravens pray Lord have mercy on us he later read the Lord hears the cry of the ravens and he survived. And he remembered, I prayed, I prayed. And he started to look into the Bible. He started to look into the Gospel. And the man who would later write, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, came to put his faith in Jesus. And he stopped working on the ships and he started to, uh, he became minister of a church in Buckinghamshire for nearly 16 years. And then was invited to become only the second or third evangelical vicar in London at that time to a church right next to Bank of England, St. Mary Walnoth. St. Mary Walnoth is a 120 seater. and it changed the world. William Carey, the father of the modern missionary movement, was inspired by, had doors opened to him by John Newton. The father of them. Ever heard of a missionary? That was William Carey. <laughs> um, Henry Martin, the great missionary to Burma who established the Urdu language, was inspired by John Newton. William Cooper, the poet, was encouraged by John Newton. And on the 4th of December, 1785, in through the doors of St. Mary Woolnoth, came a young man, 25 years old, with a note addressed to Newton. Sir, I need to speak to you. I've put it off 10,000 times, and the reason has always been pride. But I must talk with you. Please, let me know when I can come and talk with you. P.S. Please, will you keep this secret? Because the face of a Member of Parliament is now pretty well known it was William Wilberforce. He'd recently become a Christian and he was full of uh, what must I do? What must I do? What must I do as a Christian? 
a young Christian trying to get the balances of his activity and his convictions. And he came in and Newton talked with him and said, William, you must remember, this isn't about what you do, it's about what he's done. This is not a message for your hands, this is a message for your heart. And William went away encouraged. Nearly about two years later, that heart, Wilberforce's heart, felt burdened to fight the slave trade. And he gave the rest of his life to it. 46 years of failures, 11 attempts to get the acts through Parliament, failing again and again and again and again and again. Until 26th of July, 1833, now a very old man, a few hundred meters from this building, days from death, the knock came at the door. Uh, Mr. Wilberforce, just thought you'd like to know, they're free. Wonderful. <laughs> Three days later, he died. Now, if you've put your faith in Jesus, remember, his grace is still amazing. He still saves wretches. And my message to you is, he works through the local church. He works through churches. Okay? He works through churches. These are people who, no one denies they changed the world. We have dates. <laughs> and they found Jesus to be enough they fed their souls on him and they went like that woman and they sowed yeast into the lump. Shall we finish by praying? Yes, please. Our Father, we do thank you that Jesus Christ, your Son, the Prince of Heaven, the Lord of all, the Alpha and Omega, the King of Kings, has come to the world not that he might kill and destroy, but that he might be killed, that he might be destroyed, that he might be buried. We thank you that you did it, Lord, that you did it. And the people who know that changed everything. Because really, you are at work in people yes. by the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, we pray, let these words dwell in us. Let us go out with our heads held high. We're not some crazy little religion. Our people established this city. Our people are the, the people who put the foundations in, and many, many others. Hallowed be your name in these people, Lord, as we come to you, God, as we come to you, build, us, build this congregation together. As they remember Jesus, may they be fruitful. Lord of the harvest, Lord, work through this people. Oh Lord, do more than we ask and imagine. We thank you for willing hearts in this congregation. We thank you for the gifting of the leadership. We thank you for the uh, experience that they've already seen. And we say, Lord, do more, do more, do more. For you are worthy of praise and are able to do immeasurably more than we ask and imagine. 
Thank you for hearing us. Pray for you to open some doors. Pray for you to open some doors with reference to property, with reference to uh, buildings, with reference to homes. Lord, open some doors with reference to the people we sit next to at work. That we may find easy, natural conversations where we can ask them questions and find answers for them which will change everything. Keys that open doors for eternity. Thank you for hearing us, Lord. Yes. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen.